This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast. In this episode is 100 years of continuous drilling. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On August 10th, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Julie Robertson, Executive Chairman of Noble Corporation, one of the largest offshore drilling contractors in the world. This year marks their 100th year of continuous operations. The current socioeconomic climate has not been easy for Noble Corp. While nearly every business had serious trials when COVID-19 emerged, Noble was particularly challenged with the majority of its workforce stranded on far-flung offshore oil rigs. Additionally, heavy debt, coupled with decreased fossil fuel demand and an increased oil supply, led to a recent financial restructuring. Despite present conditions, Ms. Robertson remains boldly optimistic for the future. Thank you for joining me today, Julie. It's a pleasure to have you. So you currently serve as the executive chairman of Noble Corporation, and prior to that, you were also the CEO. So Noble is the leading offshore drilling contractor with a fleet of 24 offshore drilling units. Tell us more about the company. Okay. First of all, thank you, Regina, for having me today. I appreciate it, and um, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Um, the company has changed a lot over the last uh, several years. We started out, that you don't want the history, but in 1921 we started out as a land drilling contractor and uh, that means we're into our 100th year uh, of continuous operations, which we're very proud of. Uh, over, the, over the time period we sold off the land fleet, uh, went offshore and got deeper and deeper and uh, now, like you said, operate a fleet of 24 high specification, um, fairly new, pretty new assets. Uh, if you looked at us uh, five years ago, six years ago, we had about 84 assets all offshore, um, but we've narrowed that down and we spun off a company with some of those assets and now we're at 24, uh, so a very different company than it was just a few years ago. We've gone from about 8,000 employees a few years ago now, today, down to about uh, 2,500 to 3,000 fluctuating on rigs working right now. But um, that's our history. We've we've worked certainly on six continents. We've had uh, many shore-based shore locations around the globe. Right now, we're down to basically about four shore-based uh, locations globally, um, and today operating about 17 of our 24 assets. Um, so we're coming a little bit different today than it has been in the past, but that's obviously due to the situation we're in and the times we're in, and we're looking forward to putting more rigs back to work and putting more employees back to work. For sure, and these are interesting times, as you um, mentioned. But one of the things I'm fascinated by as I've been doing these podcasts is the longevity of so many of the companies. So I didn't realize that you're going into your 100th year of continuous operations. That's a terrific fact. But given that we are in this COVID-19 situation and, you know, you and your teams have been operating these rigs in far-flung locations and keeping your your employees and your customers safe. What steps have you taken to manage that workforce, I mean, particularly those that are on the drilling units? 
Right. As you know, Regina, 85% of our workforce is, in fact, uh, working offshore at any, at any given time. Half of those are on the rig at any given time, and the other half are at home. Most of our offshore employees rotate on a 28 days on and 28 days off basis. In a few places, we have operated 35 days on, 35 days off. Uh, when COVID hit, when the OPEC crisis hit and then COVID hit, um, we had a number of uh, employees, well, half of our workforce was stuck on rigs around the world long past their normal rotations. So we had some employees uh, working where they normally would work 28 days on the rig. They were up to 80 and 90 days on the rig without having crew changed off and working continually. They work 12-hour, what we call towers. So they work 12 hours wow. off yeah, when they're out there. Um, so they were uh, way overdue for crew rotations at that point, but you know, flights were locked down. We couldn't get people out of the countries in which they were working. Um, so, you know, rig hands, in my opinion, are the best people in the entire world, and they all took it in stride. Our safety record was firmly maintained during that time. We worked with the operators to remind them that our people were out there, as well as their people, out there much longer than they normally are. Um, you know, some days when they took things a little bit slower than others, kind of trying to give everybody a bit of a rest, but we really worked well with all the operators. They really worked hand in glove with us on making sure our employees were safe and operations were safe because that's obviously most critical to our operations is the safety of not only the employees but the environment. And um, so it's, it's been a real challenge. We, uh, like I said, had many of those employees stuck for 80 and 90 days offshore. We finally, when countries opened up and airspace opened up, were able to start doing some, some semi-normal crew rotations, but even so, we still have a lot of people in different parts of the world who, because of not only the operator requirements, but also the country requirements, um, we have to quarantine uh, people for 14 days before they go in. So a lot of our employees right now are quarantine, quarantining for 14 days in a hotel, not at home, in a hotel. Uh, then they make the 28-day crew change. Then they come home. Then they really end up only getting about 14 days off, but we're trying to stagger that with different people. But you know, obviously maintaining crew integrity is important. So our employees are, are just the best people in the entire world and they are hanging in there. They understand that we're all up against the wall here and doing what it takes to get this done. Things will hopefully start opening up a little bit more and maybe quarantine a little bit less before they go offshore. But um, it's been a, a period unlike anything we've ever seen before. And um, thanks to the operators, we're working very closely with them to make sure it, it continues on track. So knock on wood, uh, things have been going well for the past uh, month and a half or so since we've been able to get those first crews off the rig. Right. Another example of the new frontline essential employee, those men and women that were out on those rigs um, continuing to do their thing and stay safe. Right. Since you've been at this for month five of the pandemic and you've really been on the front lines of keeping people safe in lots of different situations, what would what have you learned that's helpful for others to know and, and was there anything that surprised you? You know, probably a number of things have surprised me and a number of things have absolutely not. Going back to the to the rig based employees who have just taken it in stride, maintained an incredible attitude, maintained strong safety parameters offshore. That doesn't surprise me because that's the kind of people that, that we have working on our rigs around the world. That's what, in my opinion, sets us apart from our competitors, is the culture that Noble has had, and obviously with being in business for almost 100 years, that goes a long way toward that. 
I think some things that maybe have surprised me, and now I'm probably going to be showing my age, is uh, the fact that employees so quickly pivoted to working, the shore-based employees working from home. Um, we have never had a work-from-home culture at Noble, and something we've been talking about for a long time now, but have never really pulled the, the trigger on yet, but this made us do that very quickly, and we have not missed a beat by doing that. Um, it's been amazing to me how quickly people adapted and you know things as, as important to, our, to everybody's workforce, but obviously to ours is you know payroll and benefits and things like that that just went on seamlessly. Um, and never missed a beat. So that has surprised me that how quickly and how seamlessly our employees were able to make that change. Um, but you know, to be uh, to be honest, our employees are just stepping up to the plate and doing what they have to do. And so none of that surprises me because we have great people. But um, just how quickly people have been able to adapt to change. Because let's face it, that's not everyone's strong suit always. Uh, but everybody's really just jumped in there and have done what they needed to do and and are doing that well. It's definitely a can-do culture in our industry. And you know, even in my business, the culture of having to be there face-to-face -face or flying all over the country or all over the world for in-person meetings or even working on projects where you, where you believed that you had to have close physical proximity to your clients, all of that's changed overnight. I think there that's could be long-term repercussions. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think of all the miles that I would have logged on an airplane in the last right. months. And, you know, nobody's, again, just like you, we've kept going. And we've learned to do things a different way. And I think it will have long-term repercussions. I mean, our workforce, you know, now that they have proven to us that they can very efficiently and effectively work from home, I think they're going to want to do more of that. And I think that will happen across the board probably with all employers. Uh, so I think it will have a... a long-term effect on uh, how we meet with clients, how we meet with our employees, how our employees work. I agree with you, Regina. I think it's, uh, it uh, was an overnight change of, of how we're going to work going forward. And, and what are you doing to cope personally? Because it's challenging regardless of what your situation is. Any tricks or techniques or things that have worked for you personally? You know, I, don't, I certainly don't have any secrets that anyone else uh, has not already figured out. Everybody's different, and everybody responds to these circumstances differently. For me, it's best for me to keep a routine and to keep a normal schedule. And um, we've been, a few of us have been coming in the office continually since all of this started, and that, for me, is what works best. But just to keep a schedule, keep a normal meeting schedule, a normal staff meeting schedule, normal routine visits with customers that you would be doing in person. Now we're doing remotely. Uh, a lot of communication with the rigs that, again, would have been, you know, I'd have much prefer to be out there with our teams offshore on the rigs, but we learn how to do things differently. Um, so, you know, just trying to maintain a normal order of communication with people, which I think is, is critical to all of us. But for me, it's, it's keeping a schedule and keeping a routine as much as normal. Yeah, for sure. And I'm jealous that you get to go to the office. <laughs> it's a privilege. It's a perk. You get to go to the office. <laughs> who would have ever thought someone would say that? But you're exactly right. I, I, I know so many people who can't. I feel very lucky that I can be up here every day with, with people. So it's, it's mentally helpful for me. And uh, I think that's a good thing. For sure. Well, you mentioned already the challenges of 2020 from an oil and gas industry perspective, but let me recap that, right? We had a major loss in 
fossil fuel demand coupled with a lack of supply constraint that conspired to send crude prices absolutely through the floor. Fortunately, we've seen some rebound, but we're still well off our January crude price highs. How does this situation affect the oil field services sector, and how are you steering Noble through these incredibly challenging times? Well, as you just pointed out, uh, you know, demand has decreased and supply has increased, and oil prices are not where we need them to be. Uh, so it's a you know it's a perfect storm. Um, but you know we. We think this is going to be with us for a while longer, and so I don't, we don't, we're not looking for, for you know, prices uh, to bail us out. We're not looking for, for that to happen because it's, it's going to be a while off, we're afraid. Um, but we're just, you know, we're continuing to do um, everything that, that we focus on. We continue to focus on our relationships with our customers. We continue to focus on um, all of our relationships with, our, with the governments in which we work. Um, but, you know, we, we think that we have to continue going. You know, a lot of plans were obviously canceled. Drilling plans were canceled um, by operators right when this kicked off. And so we had some rigs stack at that point in time. Uh, a lot of uh, operators would like to continue to operate, but their partners perhaps are, you know, a little less interested in doing so right now at these commodity prices. Uh, and then there have been government issues where in some countries, you know, they've, they've been reluctant to give new permits to work. But we're starting to slowly see some of that come back. I mean, the North Sea, we're starting to see some uh, permits being issued and some opportunities there. Uh, we're working for ExxonMobil in Guyana, and that government has, we've been working, well, got, you know, obviously ExxonMobil's working closely with the government, but um, we've seen some lenience there where, where we're getting some more right to work, and certainly they're working, working with us on crew change issues. Um, but, you know, it's just important to stay in contact with your customers and work with them in any way that you can to help them on their issues with trying to, to get back to work because even at these prices, it may not be uh, terribly profitable for them, but a lot of them have some very interesting fields in which they're working right now and they would like to get those drilled. And so we're doing everything we can uh, in terms of crew, you know, being able to get crews to rigs and rig availability uh, with those customers. So we're, we're doing everything we can to support our customers during this time and staying in very close, very close contact with them. And at the same time, you've announced the restructuring. So it's, a, it's an example of how tough these times are. How Noble emerged from the restructuring and um, what are the plans for the future? That is correct, Regina. We have announced the restructuring. There are two other offshore drillers that have filed, and unfortunately, I'm afraid more to come. Frankly, this is not a place I ever envisioned and certainly never wanted for this company to be but we were already in year five of the most severe downturn that I have ever seen in this industry. And then when the double black swan events of OPEC followed immediately by COVID occurred back in March, it became evident at that time that the liability management exercise that we had been deeply involved in was no longer going to be enough to see us through to a cycle of improved business economics. This truly has been heartbreaking for me, given our long-term history in this business and the effect that this has had on our long-term shareholders but it's something that we didn't see any way out of. In order for Noble to continue to operate, this was really the only avenue for us to take uh, for survive, to survive. Hopefully, we will be a key player in consolidation, which we need to have happen in this industry, and a much healthier balance sheet will allow us to fully participate in that. As you know, we have 99 years of history behind us, and it is my goal and hope that the Noble name will continue to be a major player in the offshore driller space for many, many years to come. Well, I love that optimism. 
and you're right, you're not the only one, right? There's one that's uh, declared before you and one right. another one that's signaling. And so it really feels like the drilling part of the industry is, is super challenged. I mean, the oil field service is a challenge in general. The upstream's challenged uh, as well, but the drilling segment seems even inordinately challenged. Looking from the outside in, it appears to me that it's overly fragmented and maybe these restructurings should result in consolidation. I mean, what's your point of view about structural changes that are necessary for this part of the services sector to recover? Because it's absolutely critical, right, to the success of the upstream. You're exactly right, Regina, and it is too fragmented and it is critical to the future of, of this industry, of the upstream industry. Um, I have believed in consolidation from day one. Uh, Noble became the company that it is today through a lot of consolidation. That's a lot of people have forgotten that because that was back in the 80s and the 90s. But that's how we changed from being a land contractor to an offshore contractor. So we have always been big proponents of consolidation. And for the last many years, particularly since the downturn at the end of 14, early 15, it's been critical that we should have had more consolidation than, than we have had. Um, as you know, nobody ever wants to be the one to you know, throw up the white flag first and say they're willing to do something. So it's just been very challenged. I think that these restructurings, not only are the restructurings that you just spoke about, about three companies, including ours, that there are a number of companies who will be filing for a second time. So I think with all the restructuring that's going to be going on in this space, I think finally um, there will be some consolidation. You know, we can't support the business that we have ahead of us with the fleets that we have with multiple uh, GNA loads. So I think it's critical that we do consolidate, and I think finally we're going to see some of that. At least I'm very hopeful that we're going to see some of that because that's we should have done that in the last five years. Not enough has been done, and I think we're finally on the road to that. But that's going to be a big difference in, uh, make a big difference in this space, I believe, and certainly uh, help us going forward. Well, you're absolutely, I, I'm, I hope that we do see the consolidation because I do think it's necessary as well. What do you think are some of the obstacles? Is it still bid-ask price spreads too far apart or no one wants to blink and be the one that liquidates the assets? So what do you think is the major obstacle so far? I think all the things that you just mentioned have always been the obstacles, and let's not <laughs> uh, let's not ever leave out the element of um, everyone wants to still be CEO. Let's not ever run out. Let's not ever ignore the the personal level of this, and not everybody can be CEO. Um, as you indicated earlier, I stepped away from the CEO position earlier this year, prior to uh, the double black swan moment of. Uh, OPEC and COVID. So prior to that, I did not see that coming when I did, but I handed it over to a great young man who I hired here over 15 years ago, and um, he's going to be very—he's going to be positioned very well to take us forward. Very bright, uh, analytical mentality, knows the drilling business well, worked offshore, which I think is is all critical to make sure we understand the business, who's running the company. And um, I think we're going to be very well positioned for that. But in answer to your question, you're right. It's always the bid ask. It's always because everybody always wants to hold out for, for more. And nobody wants to give up their company name, nor do I, uh, with 100-year history. And everybody still wants to be CEO. Well, I think coming through this restructuring, uh, many of us um, will be forced to look at that more carefully. And I think uh, some decisions are going to have to be made by 
who will be the new shareholders of companies and the new boards of companies. And um, not everybody can be CEO and somebody's going to have to step away in all these different you know, consolidating companies. But I do believe that it will happen. Um, I believe it will be, you know, a lot of our shareholders will be the same shareholders going forward. And I think that that will help uh, to, get, to get some of this over the hump, so to speak. And I'm looking forward to that happening because it's been well overdue and drastically needed. But I, I do think uh, the common ownership will help that to some extent. Well, um, I hope you're right. It's definitely needed. The other key part of this challenge is the working effectively with the operators and you know the producer side of the equation. And it's always been one of my pet projects to you bridge the gap between operators and drillers because I think there's so much more opportunity for drillers who play such a critical role to be the collector slash aggregator of various services to create more of a value chain and end-to-end -end, uh, for from development through production. And I know the operators actually would love to see more of that um, cooperation ecosystem you know, driving uh, more of a win-win-win kind of outcome uh, holistically. What's your view on the relationship between the drillers and the operators and how that relationship can evolve, needs to evolve, um, potentially might evolve more quickly given this crisis? What are your thoughts? Regina, that's a great question, and your comments are all spot on. I've always believed that there are a number of services that we can provide to operators that we're not currently providing. They're having to bring in third parties for a lot of functions that I believe we could take on ourselves. We run drill pipe on rigs every day. We run riser. Why can we not run casing? Why can we not run other things as well? We can, we can handle cuttings. There's many things that we could do for operators that we're not doing now. Uh, but I do think it's a good, there's a great opportunity there, and I know one that we will continue to explore with operators and find a way to do better. What's the obstacle? Is it the operator's skepticism? You know, they want to manage a best of breed and they, they get a little wary if one player has too much control or too much um, spend, uh, or is it a history of not working well together between the service providers and the operators? And what are some of the biggest obstacles that we'll have to overcome to move forward in that in that way? I, I think we'll have to, all, all good points that you just made and you were spot on on all of them. I just think that we're going to have to be able, the operators are going to have to let us prove to them that we can do some of the things they're asking us to do and then we're going to have to come to an agreement as to what the right uh, value of that service would be be for them. Right. Um, so I think, you know, let's face it, we've done, we've done things one way for a long time and that's always hard to break. Uh, but operators are very forward-looking people and uh, I'd like to think that we are as well. So I believe we can get there. I think, you know, obviously how we're going to be compensated for the work is important. And, you know, we can't take it on for, for no additional revenue for our shareholders. Uh, but I think that we can do a lot of things. The people, like I said earlier, people who work on drilling rigs are some of the smartest people I've ever known. They can find a way to get pretty much anything done on a drilling rig. And they're amazing people. Um, and I think the operators know that. And we have great relationships um, on the rig with the company men and the employees. And I just think we need to take that, they, they're going to need to take that step to turn some things over to us. But they're very anxious to do that. We just, while we haven't been able to close the gap, um, I think we get stuck in contractual issues and other things like that. But I think going forward, you're going to see, I think this whole pandemic issue has changed, I think it's changed relationships. I think it's definitely made 
um, some drillers and contractors, some drillers and operators even closer than we were before. Um, and I think that there's a new level of respect and cooperation on some levels. Not really all for us, because I think that we pretty much always had that with our operators. I'd like to think we have anyway. And but I think we're going to take that next step and just um, you know we and, and just jump off and and do it. But I I do think that will be I do think that will happen in in the not too distant future. You know, performance measurement has also been something that they have been very keen on. We've uh, we're fully plugged in doing a lot of that before the pandemic. Still are. I mean, it hasn't changed anything. It's just changed continuing to advance that for the time being. We're still doing all the things. We're measuring performance. We're measuring um, pretty much everything there is to, to do to measure on a drilling rig. Uh, still doing that. We just want to ex, ex, you know, expand that to further rigs. And right now that's kind of been um, closed off a little bit uh, just during the pandemic period, but I think that will step up again as well. So I think you're going to see operators and contractors find many ways to, to further the relationships and further the performance uh, and the efficiency offshore going forward. Well, and I also think you're right that those drillers that can be more creative and adaptive will be the ones that survive. That's right. Let's shift gears and talk about the energy transition. So before we were in the current situation, you know, climate change, decarbonization was a hot topic. It continues to be as we look at green stimulus spend coming out of Europe and some of the recent announcements by some of the larger integrated oil companies. You know, what's your view on the energy transition itself and how are you positioning Noble to compete um, in, the, in the future energy transition world? I think the energy transition is is here and I think regardless of this election we have coming up in front of us I think it could be advanced one party wins I think it will be advanced no matter what um, but I think that we're in this world uh, going forward I still believe the world's going to run on oil and gas for a very very long time to come and I think we need to find more ways to, to be efficient about what we do uh, so I think it'll be a lot longer for you know, alternative energies to take the place of fossil fuels. I think that's a very long, a long way off. But, you know, we have been measuring, you know, in terms of what investors are now, you know, investors have become so much more focused on the ESG element of our business. And that's something that I think that we have done a very poor job communicating to investors and the public in the past, because I would say, I certainly can speak for Noble, but I would say most drilling companies have very solid and very good environmental records. I think that's something that we were already doing. It's We're just not communicating it as well. Our, our customers certainly know it. Our operators certainly monitor it. We monitor it down to the most finite amounts that would astound most people if they knew that. And again, we've done a poor job of communicating that. I think on um, uh, ESG across the board, I just think that that we do a much better job at that than what people are getting us credit for and we just haven't measured as well. I think operators are probably more uh, challenged by, not challenged by that, but more focused. They, they're focusing more on the operators. And I know operators spending very large sums of money to, um, to track what they're doing. Again, I think that everybody's being very good global citizens in this regard. We just haven't done a very good job communicating it. We've tracked hydrocarbon use, we've tracked efficiency of engines, we've tracked all these things for years and our customers know it, we know it, but the the world doesn't know it and we need to do a better job at that. But I think our our customers are certainly stepping up to the plate and they're doing a great job on what's being expected of them. 
Um, it's just going to take a while to get there. But I think alternative energy in, in terms of replacing what we're doing now, I think it's a long way away. You know, we're obviously trying to position ourselves to be the most efficient driller, as you said earlier. If you can partner with your clients to do more things effectively, you're going to be the, the contractor of choice. If you're going to provide the crews that we can provide, um, you're going to have that. You're going to be in. You're going to be in very good shape. And I think that that's all we can do for now. We have not uh, looked at certainly expanding into wind turbines or other things. We've looked at it in the past and done some things. Uh, we've invented an electric BOP in terms of an environmental issue. Um, but you know, right now we're still focusing on being the best uh, offshore drilling contractor we can be for our customers. And that's what we're focused on right now. But we, we know the world of alternative energy is coming. That makes, that makes sense. And you probably do have a great story to tell on the ESG front. I look forward to seeing more of that being effectively communicated. Right. And your, your ability to comment on the industry is well-placed because let's talk about you for a few minutes. You obviously accomplished a lot in your career. Very few people get to be a CEO. But you were also the first female president of the International Association of Drilling Contractors, right? You just recently took that on this year? Right. I was um, asked to be chairman of IDC uh, about two years ago, and so it's kind of a rotation that we go through. We, we were in one office and then another office and then finally as chairman. And uh, yes, I was, I'm the first woman to uh, have been uh, asked to do that and put in that role, so that was obviously a great honor. Uh, I think our industry is unlike uh, is unlike any other. I, I think I made a great choice 41, let me take a deep breath, 41 years ago uh, when I decided <laughs> to become into this. When you were five. <laughs> exactly, when I was five. Um, it wasn't necessarily something that I intentionally did. I just thought I'm moving to Houston and uh, working in the energy business might be interesting for a while. I didn't really think I'd be here 41 years later and certainly didn't uh, enter the workforce um, with any aspirations to be CEO by any stretch of the imagination. So that was yet another blessing that I've had um, in my life from this company. But um, to your point of being the first female CEO in the drilling space, as well as being the first uh, female chairman of IDC, this is an industry that I think is misunderstood. And while it certainly is continues to be male-dominated, um, I have never felt for one day in 41 years to be held back because I was a woman. And I wish more women would give it a shot. And um, I think it's a, a field that women can excel in well. Uh, and no reason for, for there not to be more female CEOs and more female chairman of IEDC going forward. Well, you've definitely broken a lot of ground. And it's so exciting to, to me to see it because it is considered to be the one of the more even more male-dominated parts of the industry than, the, than generally speaking. But what were the key things that enabled you to become a successful CEO, and what advice would you offer to others that might try to follow in your footsteps? I think one thing that's very important to me is I've never tried to be anything that I'm not. Uh, I am who I am. I'm very transparent. I try to be very fair with everyone. Uh, I learned early on uh, in my time through HR administration that if you treat everyone equally, they may not like your decisions, but they won't resent them because everybody's been treating the same way. And so I believe in treating everybody fairly. I believe um, you have to have great relationships with your employees, great relationships with your customers, great relationships with your investors. I think it's important to work at all of that in addition to finding the time to, to run a successful business. 
but obviously surround yourself with incredibly good people um, and people you trust and people who you know will do the right thing every day and um, find a company that has the values that, um, that are important to you, which I was lucky with in Noble because there's never been one day that I have not been proud to represent this company. Um, but I think just, you know, be honest and open with your employees. Communicate, communicate, communicate. And I think you can't do that enough. Uh, make sure people know what's going on. Make sure they know what you're thinking and be open to ideas and be open to comments from employees and suggestions and changes. And um, be willing to accept that and be willing to make changes in what you're doing. And because Lord knows this world throws us many curves um, and we do have to pivot all the time. Um, but I just think you know, remain focused on what, what you do for a living, those people who are your, your stakeholders and across the board, and uh, make sure your employees know that you are very focused on them and their well-being. And I think that um, you can do, a, I think you can have a very successful career if you maintain those, those positions. Regina, like you, I don't think that you would have had to have risen to your level, and I certainly would have never had to be CEO to feel like I had a very um, important and constructive career. Um, I think this has been the icing on the cake for me and probably for you, but I could have been very fulfilled at, at many levels along the way. Uh, as long as I feel like I'm contributing and making a difference, uh, I think I'm, I'm very fulfilled at that. Well, words of wisdom, well said. And two of the things that you said stuck out for me. So you never tried to be someone that you're not and um, that you're always open to listen and to pivot and to adapt. And those are the principles of what we now call authentic leadership. And so you were an authentic leader before it even had a term. <laughs> job there, Julie. <laughs> so I know these are tough times, but I even though it is month five and it does feel a little bit like Groundhog Day, I am convinced they will not last forever. So what positive message or closing remarks would you like to leave with our energy industry listeners? I absolutely agree with you, Regina, that this is not going to last forever. I, like I said, I've been in this business for 41 years. We've This is a very cyclical business, obviously, based on commodity prices and world global demand. Um, but this is not going to last forever. We will come out of this. We will come out of this in a very strong fashion. The entire world, I believe, not just the drilling business and not just Noble. Um, but I think just you know, maintain a positive attitude, especially with your employees, especially just with yourself. I mean, we are going to come out of this. We will be uh, back to maybe a new normal, but it will be the normal that, that, that we will have going forward, and that will be fine. But um, this world, like I said earlier, still runs on oil and gas, and I believe there is um, a large role for our company and all energy-related companies and those who serve energy-related companies um, to have going forward. Uh, be positive, know that this is going to come back, and um, just be grateful every day that we have chosen to work in this business, and we will see this through one more time. I love the level of inspiration and optimism, Julie. Thank you so much. You've definitely boosted my day. I'd love <laughs> to hear the optimism in your voice, uh, and, and to, I learned a few things, so I really do appreciate your time. I do have a request at some point. I have never been offshore, and that is my one dream. So one of these days, I want to get out on a rig uh, when it's safe to do so. But um, I'll throw that out there for the well, universe Gina, to consider. You, you, have, 
Regina, you have uh, touched my heart because there's nothing I enjoy more than being offshore. And you will look really good in our yellow coveralls, and we look forward to getting you, uh, getting you out there. Thank you again, Julie. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you, Regina. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on 100 Years of Continuous Drilling. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.